Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, it's Sean Elling, and we've got some exciting news to share. This show the one you're listening to right now, is getting a new name and new art when I take over full-time hosting on October 13th. It's going to be the same great show, asking big questions with no easy answers. We'll just have a new name and look. We'll have more to share about all that soon, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. Stay subscribed. Are we sexualizing people without even realizing it? I'm Emily St. James, and I'm a senior correspondent on the culture team at Vox. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. When I came out as a trans woman in 2019, a friend told me something I've never forgotten. I was talking about how I worried about street harassment, about men catcalling me and making lewd comments when I walked by. And she said, oh, you won't get as much of that as you think, because you're tall. My friend, who's cis, is taller than me, and I'm 6'1". She said that while she does get street harassment, it's not nearly as much as her shorter friends do. For the most part, I've found her statement to be true. The shorter women in my life, both cis and trans, encounter more street harassment than I do. I wondered what to take from all of this until I read Sexed Up, the new book by Julia Serrano, who's one of my favorite thinkers about human sexuality and gender. Serrano's 2007 book Whipping Girl remains the gold standard for exploring the intersections of gender identity and wider society. In her new book, Serrano posits that our brains have been so inundated from birth by messages about gender and sexuality that we make assumptions about the gender and sexuality of anyone and everyone we meet, in all kinds of ways, all the time. For instance, we can't help but sort all of humanity into two buckets, man and woman. And even if you know that gender is way more complicated than that, Serrano argues that you can still struggle to break free of that binary. I know I do. And clearly, the people who see me in public places do too. I'm tall, a stereotypically, air quotes, man trait, which seems to have led to much less street harassment in my life. Serrano's thesis is not a new one, but what she does with these ideas is nuanced and thought-provoking. 
and it goes a long way to explaining the world we live in. Julia, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So your new book, Sexed Up, tackles sexualization, but your definition of it is very slightly different from how a lot of people might use it. So I'm wondering if you could sort of just sum up your broad ideas about sexualization in our society. And I'm aware you wrote a 280-page book about this, so sum it up is maybe difficult, but what would you say is your top-line argument? Well, first to define it, since you're correct, Sometimes people define it in different ways. I describe sexualization as when a person is non-consensually reduced to their real or imagined sexual attributes, so their body behaviors or desires, rather than seen as a whole person. And most people are familiar with sexualization in terms of women being sexualized in our hetero-male-centric culture. And lots of feminists have discussed various manifestations of sexualization, such as objectification, slut-shaming, sexual harassment, and sexual violence at the most extreme end. And a lot of that work is very important, and it definitely informed my book But one of the things that I have experienced as a trans woman, so when people presume that I'm a cisgender woman, I experience a lot of the same types of sexualization that women in general face. But when people know that I'm a trans woman, they often sexualize me in a host of different ways. For example, stereotyping me as sexually deviant or predatory, or hypersexual, or as desperate, or undesirable, or as exotic, or as a fetish object. And these different types of sexualization actually have counterparts experienced by other marginalized groups. For example, people of color, and people with disabilities, and other minorities have talked about being stereotyped in these highly sexualized ways as well. And it seemed to me that these were all interconnected, such that the idea of being reduced to sexual being has a delegitimizing or degrading effect on people. And so I wanted to understand why this is and to make the argument that we should challenge all forms of sexualization across the board and that being a more productive way of hopefully eventually getting rid of the phenomenon. Yeah. I also am a trans woman and have had that experience of going from the world perceiving me as a man to perceiving me as a woman. And that shifted so much for me. And I'm wondering how that shift in perceptions of how you were perceived, how you experienced that when it was happening, because you transitioned a long time before I did. Uh, And that makes it sound really bad. You transitioned before I did. Let's put it that way. (laughs) How did sort of those perceptions inform what you wrote? Sure. And it's almost as if I had two simultaneous transitions. So in one sense, I went from moving through the world being, for the most part, perceived as male to moving through the world being perceived as female. And when that happened, it was very dramatic. Not only just other types of sexism that women experience, but sexualization especially. I have one chapter where I go into a lot of my experiences with catcalls and street remarks, the type of thing that often happen to young women, particularly in urban settings. So that had a big impact on me. But I also transitioned from being someone who is just presumed cisgender to 
being in certain situations where people knew I was transgender. And I'm a, a fairly out person in my life. I'm a, <laughs> I'm very publicly transgender, let's just say that. So there would be times where people would know that I was trans. I was also performing a lot as a musician and a spoken word performer. And when I would come out as trans in the middle of my piece, the remarks I would get from men were very different than the ones that they would give me say, before I performed and, and when they presumed that I was a cis woman. So both of those things happened at the same time to me and were very, very dramatic. So it was very jarring for me, and that was what started me down the path of being interested in this subject. The first, like, half of this book really just, like, dissects a whole bunch of underlying assumptions we have in our society. And there's one I really want to dig into, and that's the idea of this predator-prey dynamic, this idea we have sort of built around how men and women are meant to function. I keep describing it to people as like an 80s stand-up comedy routine. Men do this, and women do this, and like that is so pernicious and poisonous. I'm wondering if you can dig into that a little bit, that predator-prey dynamic. Sure. I describe it as a mindset that we're socialized in our culture to understand how sex and sexuality works. And a lot of us overcome it. You know, we can learn that, oh, this is how we're taught to see the world, but it's not necessarily how the world actually is. Mm -hmm. But so predator-prey, basically what it boils down to is we're taught that men are sexual initiators or sexual aggressors, aka predators, mm -hmm. and that women are sexual objects that men pursue. That is prey. Mm -hmm. And it comes up in our culture in so many different ways. So one way is it's the presumed sexual script that a lot of people just assume that this is how sex and romance happens, which is that the man makes the first move and all subsequent moves. And the woman either accepts or acquiesces, but she's not supposed to make the moves herself. Generally, women are not perceived as being legitimate sexual initiators. Instead, they're seen as opening themselves up to being sexualized by others, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is where the very pernicious idea that, oh, a woman is asking for it if she, say, wears something that's revealing or if she is flirting with a man. Mm -hmm. And then if something bad happens to her, for example, sexual harassment or violence, she's seen as being at fault because she opened herself up to that. So it should be really obvious when you spell it out like this, that this is largely responsible for women being seen as not having sexual agency or even sexual desires of their own. And this was an idea that has been present through a lot of like old, really bad sexology, the idea that men have sex drives and women don't have sex drives. Yeah. And so that's one aspect. There's other really bad aspects to it. <laughs> In addition to leading to women being sexualized, it also creates a scenario where people who are not women, for instance, men, but also maybe trans people, are viewed as not being able to be sexualized, right? One of the statistics I quote in the book, and it's a, a CDC-based study mm -hmm. that showed that one in four men in the United States experiences sexual violence at some point in their lives, which is a very high amount for something that we really don't talk about and largely pretend doesn't happen. And when it does come up, it's usually in the context of, like, prison rape jokes, which are really horrific. Mm -hmm. But they're seen as jokes because it's seen as, oh, uh, well, that man deserved it. Or it sometimes comes up 
in instances where, say, an older woman and a teenage boy, if they were to be sexual, that falls under statutory rape. Mm -hmm. And yet, whenever those incidents, like, pop up in the media, there are always people saying, oh, well, you know, he wasn't raped, he was lucky, right? Yeah. So it kind of invisibilizes the idea that people who aren't women can't be sexualized. So that's the main gist of it. You have this interesting metaphor in the book of comparing what you call being marked to being a celebrity. You know, if Taylor Swift or Beyonce or someone is like out walking, there's a billion paparazzi taking photos of them. And we have this like internal idea that that's an acceptable way to behave. You and I are not here to interrogate whether it is, but like you sort of talk about how the further you sort of get from this standard cis-straight white male dynamic, the more you are, quote-unquote, marked by society. I'm wondering if you can explain that further and also give some examples of how that affects all of our lives. Sure, yeah. I didn't invent the idea of, it's often called markedness, <laughs> the idea that some things are marked and other things are unmarked. But the general idea is that some things are viewed as kind of the default status. They're seen as normal and natural. <laughs> and other things that fall outside of whatever is considered normal or natural is often marked in our eyes. That is, it seems remarkable. Often we'll question it or scrutinize it. <laughs> this happens particularly if you're in a largely white society and you happen to be a person of color, you will be marked for that reason, right? <laughs> in different cultures or subcultures, like different people will be marked for different reasons. But kind of in our general white, straight, mainstream culture, certain people are marked. And, and women are amongst those who are marked in a male-centric culture. And I make the argument that a lot of the street harassment I face definitely falls into kind of a typical way that feminists would describe it in that it involves sexual objectification and these men are objectifying me and that dehumanizes me. And all of that can totally be true. But I think a lot of the experiences that I had, A, didn't really seem to be about attraction. They were more like, I'm a woman walking down the street and so they can comment or, you know, like troll me in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I've also <laughs> experienced that as, say, a trans person who, when people know I'm trans, they feel like they can ask me all sorts of questions about, like, my history and my body and all sorts of things that would normally be understood to be beyond the pale. But when you're marked, people feel that it's fair to scrutinize and question you. Yeah. And so, well, celebrities, definitely, that comes with prestige and often wealth and power associated with that, right? You can be marked and seen as, like, more special than everyone else, but a lot of marginalized groups are marked in a way that they're viewed as basically stigmatized or inferior to the default group. That's definitely something that plays a really strong role in sexualization, particularly I talk about in the book the idea of phantom invitations that people, because they see you as marked, they feel invited even though you did not invite them. So much of this stuff is just ingrained in how we raise children. And I am sort of wondering how you think the way that we raise kids, especially children we perceive as boys, sort of plays into this sexualization of society. How do you think those things are intertwined? Yeah, so I think we focus for very understandable reasons on how sexualization impacts girls and women, because it definitely has a far greater impact on their lives. But the fact that we're all socialized to view the world this way, I felt that it was important to have a chapter where I talk about 
the ways it can create a distorted view of sex and sexuality for boys and men who are picking up a lot of these same messages. And while they are not targeted by sexualization in a lot of these ways, it can lead to this mystification of girls and women. And I describe this in terms of what I call enforced ignorance, which is just the way that if a particular group is stigmatized or seen as inferior, if you're in the dominant group, you're not supposed to learn too much about those other groups. So for instance, for me, while I was trans and I was queer, and I was definitely would have been interested in learning more about girls and women, life experiences and queer experiences, if I were to say have a feminist magazine or a gay magazine and people found me with that, I would be stigmatized for those experiences. And what ends up happening is that that's a way for the dominant group to make sure that there's just basically this ability to ignore those real experiences that marginalized groups have. Again, I think a lot of boys and men tend to view women through a lot of these mystical terms like, you know, she's enchanting or she uses her feminine wiles to cast a spell on me. And nobody ever talks about their attraction to other men using these mystified metaphors. The predator-prey mindset which views women as sexual objects, I think it creates in a lot of boys and men's mind this idea that there's an uneven playing field mm-hmm. where women are lucky because people sexually appreciate them. And if a woman wants to have sex, all she would have to do is say she wanted sex and people would have sex with her. It's kind of this idea that is only allowed to exist if you don't ever put yourself in the shoes of what it would be like to be a woman and to be kind of bombarded by unwanted sexual attention or comments, or to be placed in what's often described as a gatekeeper role where sex only happens if the woman allows it to. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to talk about the ways in which this negatively impacts men, because I think that not having that understanding helps facilitate or enable men to then treat women really badly. So I think it's a vicious circle, but I think explaining how it's impacting everybody involved is a first step to hopefully diffusing it. Yeah. I am wondering how you have thought about the pushback against trans people and especially trans kids as you were writing this, because we are in this moment of extreme anti-trans propaganda, and I'm wondering like, how you feel that intersects with your book. Yeah, so I have a specifically a LGBTQ plus dedicated chapter, and in that I talk about the sexualization of trans people, and I also talk about the history of just different marginalized groups being mischaracterized or stereotyped as potential sexual threats to women and children. It's a trip that comes up over and over again. As one example, during integration and the civil rights movement, people who were segregationists would often make claims that are very similar, that like, oh, well, if we integrate, then that means that our women and children are going to be sexually violated. Coming up with similarly preposterous theories or claims about that. And we've also experienced this with, say, the Nita Bryant in the 1970s. A lot of the anti-homosexual rhetoric was framed around gay teachers recruiting children, and basically all that has 
reemerged. When I was writing that chapter, I was aware of this history, and there was some instances, particularly in kind of hardcore anti-transgender groups and people who are very dedicated to, like, campaigning against trans people, they were already making a lot of these claims about grooming children and sexualizing children. And I was astounded when the book actually came out how much worse it has gotten in the last year since I was working on that chapter. Mm. So it's very scary, but all of this has happened before and it will happen again because it's really easy to smear marginalized groups as sexual predators based on little to no evidence. Mostly because a lot of these themes regarding sexualization, they just run deep. And so these claims will resonate with people even though there's absolutely no evidence that any of this is going on. Humans are messy, complex creatures. So why are we so compelled to put people in neat boxes of binary opposites? Julia Serrano will give me her take after we're back from a quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I do want to talk a little bit more about how queer lives are impacted by this, and I want to start in a kind of a different place from talking about queer people directly, you have in this book a thing called The Table of Opposites. I'm going to read a few of them. You have like big, small, 
strong, weak, hard, soft. And in the book, you're just laying out these direct opposites, like big and smaller opposites. And then you're sort of saying, we associate these with masculinity. We associate these with femininity. And like it unlocked a lot of stuff for me. But it also made me think a lot about like binaries. And I'm wondering why you feel like we're so drawn to this idea of black and white thinking, this idea of there's one thing and there's another thing and that's it. Yeah, that's a really good question because we often talk about like the gender binary where there is an aspect of truth to the fact that human beings tend to kind of fall into male or female types. Obviously, there are exceptions to that and there's trans people, there's intersex people, but there are generally two types of people. And so it's very understandable why like, we might gravitate towards binary thinking, even though, as I explain in the Opposites chapter, that it's actually more accurate to view sex as overlapping bell curves and there being a lot of overlap between us. But this idea that we're opposites, that like men must be tall and women must be short, basically erases all of the short men and, and tall women. Mm-hmm. But it's even more... Amazing when you think about the fact that we do this a lot for other groups. Like, for instance, in our culture, we tend to do it between people who are white and people of color. Mm -hmm. Or we do it between people who are adults and who are children. And sometimes these opposite pairs will overlap a bit. So a lot of the connotations or adjectives that people associate with women relative to men are similar to children relative to adults, which is kind of one way in which sexism happens. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the idea of sex as being two overlapping bell curves, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that just a little bit. Sure. So first, I think people, and particularly a lot of anti-trans campaigners, like to assert biological sex as some underlying reality, that there are men and there are women, and then that's it. In actuality, there are a lot of different sexually dimorphic traits But every single one of them, they show overlap with one another. I suppose I sort of need to say that a lot of times people think of biology as acting like on-off switches, where if the light switch is on, then you're male. If it's off, then you're female. When in reality, there's 25,000 different genes. (laughs) We're very, very complicated creatures. And whenever there's lots of different inputs for anything, you always get what are called complex traits, and they tend to fall along bell curves. And so there's a lot of overlap between women and men. And I make the case in the book that a lot of what we assume is kind of natural differences are very influenced by kind of these unconscious biases that we have about A, kind of relentlessly categorizing people according to what sex they are, (laughs) and then B, this idea that this tendency to want to see male and female as complete opposites, when in actuality, these are just differences. And sometimes there's a lot of overlap there that is ignored by focusing on the opposites. Yeah. It's really interesting to me to be talking about this with you because I was in therapy yesterday. It's time for Emily's Therapy Corner. (laughs) And I was talking with my therapist about how I have this intense need to classify everything about myself. I need to be like, I am a bisexual trans woman. You know, I have to put a label on me for everything. And yet that need to label like kind of gets us into this space of not allowing for 
the more complicated nature of reality. And I'm like wondering if you too feel that push and pull between like the need to classify everything and then also the need to just let people be messy and have the human reality of what it is to exist on this planet. Yeah, I think the way that I would put it is that we do allow people to be messy in all sorts of ways. For instance, I don't feel like any kind of compulsion to like classify myself with regards to what art I like or other different aspects of my personality. I think there are ways in which human beings, it's a given that people are allowed to be diverse in certain ways. <laughs> but then when there's a lot of pressure to put you in a particular box or if there are a lot of norms about being a particular type of person or behaving in a particular type of way, then we eventually have to describe what it's like to not be in that group. And I definitely agree with regards to the greater queer community, LGBTQIA+, a lot of the differences and a lot of the identities do come out of a certain amount of, well, if people are supposed to be straight, then people who aren't straight would be labeled, say, gay. And then within the group of people who are gay, some are like, well, we're this, but we're not this other way. For instance, we're exclusively gay, not bisexual, or we're gay, but we're not trans. And so there definitely is a lot of subdividing into all these different sub-identities. And I think it's something that obviously a lot of people make fun of. You know, people will make alphabet soup jokes. But I think that Within any group of people who is marginalized, sometimes they will do parallel aggressions within their own community to further subdivide and attempt to be like, well, we're the more respectable version of our marginalized group, whereas you're not respectable. And so I definitely think that the pressures coming from kind of the dominant straight culture there, and basically we're reacting to it. That's how I understand it. What are some of the other ways that queer people are reacting to this era in which we are being sexualized just by our mere existence? Like, how are reactions breaking down within the queer community? You talk a lot in the book about respectability politics, and I'm wondering if you can dig into that a bit here. So obviously, respectability politics, which is a term that's been around for a long time to refer to attempts by some members of a marginalized group to distinguish themselves as the so-called good ones relative to other members of the marginalized group who are assumed to deserve what they have coming to them. And we can see this play out, for instance, with girls and women in a world where there's a lot of sexualization. Some will claim that they're the good ones. As part of that, they'll slut shame other girls and women. They'll slut shame their peers. And by doing so, they kind of establish themselves as, well, they're the bad ones, we're the good ones. And I think what happens in queer communities is often a lot like that. So I think there is a sense when a group is very, what I describe as fully stigmatized, you're seen as there's nothing you can do about it. You're just members of that group who's like just not tolerated by society. But as soon as you start getting some tolerance, then respectability politics comes into play. And for instance, some gay individuals might look down at gay people who dress in drag or who wear leather at pride events and so on. And that is basically one of these attempts at respectability politics. And I think that there are variations of that going on. Particularly, I think that there are some younger queer people who are growing up in a world where there is 
some tolerance and acceptance of young queer people in our culture, <laughs> which is something that I did not have. So I think as someone who's like a Generation X queer person, a lot of us got to the point where part of coming out was just the rest of the world is just going to see me as a freak and I really don't care. I couldn't care less about all those people. That's like one reaction. But I definitely think that there might be some generational divides of some people who do kind of come up at a time where there is some respectability, not wanting to be associated with queer people who, in the book, I describe as shameless yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about shame because I kept describing the book in terms of shame. And then you didn't really use the word until you compared it to stigma and the idea of certain groups of people, certain actions are sexually stigmatized. And I'm wondering like, what you see is the differentiation between shame and stigma. So I definitely think that in common use, stigma and shame are often used in a similar way to refer to like a sense of internalized inferiority or embarrassment, for instance, about maybe being a member of a marginalized group or perhaps for basically engaging in sexual acts or having certain sexual desires that are like deemed as bad or pathologized in society. Mm -hmm. So they definitely have that in common. The reason why I use stigma throughout the book is because people have studied stigma Mm-hmm. And in addition to like maybe a sense of shame that I might internally feel, stigma is very closely associated with the idea of contagion. So when I say contagion, I'm not talking about viruses or like legitimate communicable diseases. What I'm describing is it's kind of a type of magical thinking. And when contagion is involved, people assume that if, say, someone is stigmatized, a member of a stigmatized group, if I get too close to that person, if I'm too closely associated with them, that their stigma will rub off on me. Irving Goffman, who's a sociologist from way back who did a lot of work on stigma, he described that as courtesy stigma. Other people call that stigma by association. Mm -hmm. Anyway, people feel that not only is it contagious, but that people who are affected are like permanently ruined by it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just negative, but it's like negative and permanent. And it became clear as I was working on this, that that is how we see sex. For instance, a woman is a virgin, but then once she has sex, she's like permanently contaminated by the experience. Or if say someone was in a new relationship and their partner revealed that, oh, you know, I used to be in a same-sex relationship or I used to be a sex worker. Even though those are past experiences and sexual acts are fleeting, like they disappear over time, people might still feel that that individual is like permanently tainted by that. And then by having a sexual experience with that person, they might feel that their own sexuality might have been compromised. Yeah. One sees this a lot, and I talk about this in the book, with the idea that queer people having sexual interest in a queer person or any kind of sexual experience with a queer person, people will often worry that their own gender sexuality has been compromised in the process. And I believe that that's another example of this contagion working. Mm -hmm. And so that might sound a little bit technical, but the idea of sex and stigma and contagion kind of are all interwoven with one another. And it comes up over and over again when you start looking at different reactions to sex and sexuality in our culture. 
We kind of started this conversation by talking about the anti-trans panic, but we're in a larger anti-queer moment. You look at things like the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, and like it's vague enough that the idea that a gay man who's a teacher saying, I have a husband, could be considered sexualized behavior. And I feel like reading your book helped me get at why some people are so freaked out about that. I'm wondering how you've been thinking about just this larger anti-queer moment as someone who has written a lot about queer lives, but especially in this book is writing about how that intersects with sexualization. I think it's not an accident that at this point in time, anti-LGBTQ forces are really honing in on two main arguments, one of which is the idea that we are grooming children. That is, basically a gay teacher or a rainbow flag in a classroom will somehow contaminate or corrupt their children into a gay lifestyle. And this idea of social contagion, that LGBTQ identities are being spread through contagion. And having just talked about stigma, I think that there's definitely this idea of that we are a stigmatized group and these people who are opposed to us feel that we're kind of corrupting their families and their children, even though queer children just pop up randomly in families due to natural variation. Mm. But I also think that both of these things serve as a way to quarantine us, to silence us. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're an external force corrupting their children is a way for them to essentially disappear us. Like, that's what they want. And some of these ideas can sort of make sense to people who aren't really paying a lot of attention. I can imagine people thinking, oh, well, do we really need to teach sexual orientation to young children? So that might sound reasonable. Or, hmm, the idea that transgender identities are being spread by social contagion. We should do research on that, which people have, and they have found that that's not the case. These might sound reasonable to mainstream people who don't have a, a strong agenda, but seriously, the people who are promoting these things are trying to essentially mandate us out of existence. What's the connection between how we sexualize people and wearing masks during the pandemic? We're going to find out after one last short break. Across the course of the pandemic, we sort of ran this real-time experiment in people, quote-unquote, marking themselves. Whether they wore masks or did not wear masks in the course of that pandemic, depending on where you were, doing one or the other was like a way of marking yourself. And you wrote this book in the midst of the pandemic, and I'm wondering if you see any interaction between these ideas of how we automatically look at and think about other people just by glimpsing at them and like mask usage and things like that, or if I am just making things up. No, I, I definitely think that you're right. And depending on where you are, I live in the Bay Area where people are usually pretty good about masking. And if you go to the grocery store, most people will be wearing masks. And if you're the person not wearing a mask, people might give you dirty looks. <laughs> 
Whereas I've also visited places where no one is wearing a mask. And as soon as I put on a mask, people will make comments about me or ask me questions about why I'm wearing a mask. And I definitely think that that is based upon whether or not a person is, is marked or not. As I alluded to earlier, what's viewed as marked or unmarked is really specific to a time and place. So what seems normal to me as someone who lives in a big city might seem really surprising and remarkable to somebody who isn't in the same setting a lot. Kind of like with a mask, trying to sort of decouple yourself from some of these thought patterns is this individual action that sort of is meant to benefit everyone. Now, putting on a mask is like, in theory, very easy. I can just put it on and it's done. It takes a second. But like, pulling off this idea of decoupling ourselves from these sexualized attitudes we've been steeped in since birth is much harder to accomplish. Like, what's a good way that I, a human being living right now, how can I sort of start doing that? Sure. I think that there's an us and a them problem that goes on a lot of times with markedness and stigma. And so allow me to explain. So I can, in my own life, say, decide to wear a mask, or I could decide to get over the stigma that I feel like sexualizing stigma as a woman or as a trans person or as a bisexual. I can accomplish those things, but I'm also living in a world where other people will inevitably view me in particular ways and may make assumptions about me or react to me in different ways based on those facts, right? And so I think one way with regards to overcoming sexualization, I think there's definitely starting with ourselves and learning to sever sex from stigma kind of in our own lives and experiences. And that's something that took me a very long time as someone who's a bisexual trans woman to feel like I don't feel any stigma about my own sex and sexuality. <laughs> However, I still do experience stigma from other people who, upon learning those things about me, will use that to try to delegitimize me or to disgrace me. Yeah. And that's why I think it's really important, for one thing, and the main reason why I wrote the book is to understand that there's a perception problem here. And the perception problem requires kind of all of us to start realizing these kind of unconscious mindsets that are driving all this. And hopefully the book will help kind of open people's eyes to that. An example that I've used before is say there are certain stereotypes that might be a, a sexist stereotype or a racist stereotype. And 50 years ago, if you brought that up to people, most people wouldn't even see that. Whereas now, maybe people have talked about that stereotype long enough that people now see it. It becomes obvious to them. And once these mindsets become obvious to us, then we have the possibility to work to transcend them. What are some different ways that we might start to think about sex? You have a really long analogy about food in the book, and I really liked that as a way to think about how we consider sex in our society. Sure. And I'm not the first person to use a metaphor between food and sex. They definitely have some things in common in that they're both required for survival, right? We need food for sustenance and sex is required for reproduction. But at the same time, in our culture, most of our experiences with it are more centered on pleasure that we experience from these things. And much in the same way that we expect people to have diverse palates, 
we should expect there to be a certain amount of sexual diversity, that not everyone is going to find the exact same types of people attractive, and not everyone is going to express their sexualities in the exact same way. And we do accept that for the most part with regards to food. I mean, there are definitely some food-related norms or taboos. But for the most part, if I say I hate broccoli or I love broccoli, you won't be super surprised either way. So in the book, you sort of introduce this idea of sexual dystopia and the natural inclination to sort of end sexualization would be to just stop talking about sex or thinking about it altogether. And I actually want to quote something from the book here, where you say, if anything, hiding sex may make those sexual thoughts seem even more taboo, thus leading some people to develop unhealthy relationships with their own desires. And you point to child sexual abuse scandals within several religious communities, and how not talking about sex and how pretending it sort of is not there has created that sort of environment. And we live in a society that has a really, really divided and strange relationship to sexuality. So I kind of wonder, do you think we live in a sexual dystopia right now? Yeah. With regards to the dystopias, I definitely think a society where sex is repressed and not talk about will not make sexualization go away, but will only force it underground. And that was what I was trying to get across with regards to child sexual abuse scandals that have happened in religious settings, which are viewed as being, like, holy and, and without sin. And I definitely think that knowledge is important. I think we need to talk about sex. I think that both from a preventing child sexual abuse scandal, that there's lots of evidence that age-appropriate sex education so that children are aware of the fact that there's such a thing as consent and that they have enough language to be able to describe a bad incident that happened to them is really, really crucial. And in fact, we've seen a very parallel thing in our culture with adults, where, say, in the like 1940s and 50s, it's not that there wasn't sexualization and sexual violence. It's that there wasn't the language that we have now to describe sexual assault. There's not an openness to people potentially hearing or listening to someone if they describe having had a bad experience. So talking about these things is actually really crucial for not being in a sexual dystopia. I talk about sexual utopias, and by sexual utopia, I don't mean an imagined world where we're all having the exact same sexual experiences. I'm talking about a world in which we acknowledge sexual diversity. Yeah. And I think that in our culture right now, I think there's a mishmash of different subcultures. I think that there are definitely segments of our culture that are very much in the hiding sex, not talking about sex at all type of situation, and that there are other parts of our culture where there are various levels of talking about sex. And some of that talking about sex, there can be stuff that's not necessarily good, you know, like sexualizing comments are something that doesn't necessarily help reduce the problems that we're experiencing right now. As alluded to several times, we sort of live in an era where there's tremendous political pushback against anything that empowers folks who aren't straight, white, cis men. And when we look at this idea in your book about creating an ethically sexual society, like, how can we sort of accomplish that in a world where there's so much pushback against, like, even the idea of talking about these things within some circles? I think it's complicated on many different fronts right now, not just in talking about sexualization. Obviously, we're living through a big backlash against Me Too. We're 
definitely having a backlash against various marginalized groups. I think that with regards to being an author, I definitely am thinking in the long term with most of my books that I hope this book being out there in the world can help push some ideas that I think will be useful and that will make the world better, even if right now isn't the perfect time for people to absorb them all. While we are in a backlash now, there has been a lot of progress, both challenging, say, sexual harassment, sexual violence from like feminist work and for basically making it a somewhat better world for gender and sexual minorities to exist. So I think that there can be progress, even though we keep bumping up against these backlashes from time to time. Yeah. I think it's also helpful to look at some of the things that's completely accepted now. For example, people will push back on, say, gender pronouns or LGBTQ people like hanging rainbow flags. But there were similar pushbacks against, say, using the term Ms. rather than Mrs. or Miss. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of instances where over time what seemed new to people and people immediately pushed back on kind of became more common and more accepted as time went on. Yeah. I do kind of want to break out a part of that, which is it felt to me like two years ago that we were in an era where like hanging a rainbow flag was now relatively non-controversial. And it feels to me like we've backslid a little bit. Do you think that's just a natural sort of progression of how these things work? Or have you felt as well like there's been a little bit of backsliding in those areas? Yeah, I think very real progress has been made for large segments of our culture. So say a lot of people in my life who are straight and fairly mainstream people, the amount of acceptance that they have, and maybe acceptance isn't always the right word, it could be tolerance, but tolerance is something compared to where we used to be, that they're fine with LGBTQ people in their lives. I definitely think that, particularly on the political right in our country, there has been a consolidation around relitigating a lot of old stereotypes about LGBTQ people. I think they used some of the anti-trans activism that was happening as kind of an excuse to open up the door and to start challenging the very existence of LGBTQ people in schools and in public life, etc. I don't think that's the whole culture, though. And the problem is that people who are subscribing to those what we all thought were outdated ideas not that long ago, that they have a lot of political power and the way that the U.S. government is set up, that there's definitely an advantage built in for people in red states to have kind of a disproportionate amount of control over, say, the Senate, for example. So I think it's really scary right now, but I don't think it's because most people have gone back to being anti-LGBTQ. I think that we've won over a lot of people, but the forces that are very vocal right now are making it increasingly dangerous and scary for a lot of LGBTQ folks right now. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of want to wrap by, you bring up in the very last chapter of the book this idea of what an ethically sexual society would look like. And I kind of want you to like paint a picture of what that might be. Is that a world where folks wearing BDSM gear out in public is less stigmatized? Is that a world where someone who's visibly trans is less stigmatized? Like, what does an ethically sexual society look like to you? One of the points that I make is the fact that 
we're always going to see some people as, quote-unquote, more sexual than other people. So people see women as more sexual than men, which is why we police what women wear more than men. If a straight couple walks down the street holding hands, people don't see that sexual, but if a same-sex couple did the same thing, they might be seen as sexual, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for us to recognize the fact that we're often the ones projecting sexual motives and meanings onto other people that don't necessarily stem from them. So I think that that's a very crucial part of it. I also talk about a couple different steps that we can do with regards to being more ethically sexual ourselves. Some of those include rejecting non-consensuality, obviously not just non-consensual sex, which is both wrong and illegal, but getting to a point where we don't make assumptions about what other people must want or what their desires must be is really important. I think it's really important to stop dividing sex up into good and bad categories. We will all have aspects of sexual expressions that we like or dislike, but we shouldn't try to socially mandate them, once again, as long as everything involved is consensual. The third thing is self-examining desire. So if we don't want to live in a world where other people can police our sex lives, then we should at least self-examine ours, particularly since there are a lot of really bad messages, problematic messages in the culture that we're raised in, that I think we should look to see whether, well, you know, I was socialized to view women as sexual objects. Maybe I should, like, examine that, right? Or particularly with regards to a lot of marginalized groups, some of us are quote-unquote fetishized, meaning people see us as especially exotic and everything. And there's some problems that come in there, and that doesn't mean necessarily that you have to completely banish all expressions or desires of sex that you experience, but you should at least be self-investigating those. Yeah. And finally, the last one was severing sex from stigma, which I've already talked about the problems that stigma causes and the fact that we associate it with sex leads to kind of a lot of not just bad ideas about possibly our own sexual desires and bodies, but often we project those onto other people. And moving beyond that is very crucial, too. Well, Julia, the book is called Sexed Up. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme song was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. 